my husband and I were watching Little Mermaid last night, and you know, there's Ursula the Sea Witch who steals the voice of Ariel. And a lot of people think that's what editors do. That's one of the myths I bust is, you know, we're not Ursula the Sea Witch. We're not going to steal your voice. We're not interested in doing that. You know, we just, we want to enhance your voice. Right. You're a voice teacher, not a sea witch. Exactly. Exactly. So you're a Sebastian, not a sea witch. <laughs> Welcome to Too Legitimate to Quit, instantly actionable small business strategies with a pop culture spin. I am your host, Annie P. Ruggles, and my guest today is the brilliant Alexandra Youth. Alexandra is an editor with 31 years of experience, and her guiding principle is encouragement through editing. In 2012, she started her own company, Loomis and Lyman, to help authors navigate the daunting world of self-publishing. After seeing how hungry her friends in the coaching world were for knowledge about publishing, Alex started Writer's Ed, of which I am a very proud member, to provide nonfiction writers guidance, community, and support. Her greatest joy is helping them become authors and authorities. Alexandra, what do small business owners need to focus on this week? Words matter. Hmm. Whether they're writing copy or blog posts or reports, especially if they're writing books, your words matter and how those words appear on screen, on a page, whatever format you're publishing to, you need to pay as much attention to the words themselves as the message they're carrying. So as an editor, I know one of the things that we, because we're buds, and so you're going to henceforth hear me refer to our guest today as Alex, just so you know. I'm not just taking liberties here. We're buds. But one of the things that Alex and I have discussed many, many times is people have similar uh, hesitation to working with an editor that they may to selling and this idea of like it's going to change me if I give myself over to an editor it's going to corrupt my words in some way or it's going to put something out there and so instead not only do we not approach the editor we actually in a lot of ways stop writing because it becomes like a snowballed fear of putting our voices even out there if the argument is that words matter how do we know which words matter and where to put them well, that's where the editor comes in. And a lot of people are out there and they take pride in the fact that they don't work with an editor because they want to preserve their voice. Well, a good editor understands how to protect your voice and make amplify your voice and make your voice the best that it can be. Uh, like a choir director will work with the choir to enhance all the voices, not just let everybody do their own thing, a good editor will work with the author and find the best way to amplify the author's voice while while 
remaining true to their style. I love the way that you liken that to the choir director, because yes, you want all of these individual voices to come together and blend, but they're still individual voices, right? So Mm -hmm. I think one of Mm -hmm. the things that people don't understand is that your job, like a little bit about what we were talking about before, but your job is not to make their writing sound like everybody else's. Correct. I mean, individuality is what sells the book. I mean, if you're a coach or an entrepreneur, you have your own unique style. You have your own unique way of doing things and getting your message across. And a good editor does not want to stifle that uniqueness. A good editor enhances the uniqueness. Ooh, a good editor enhances the uniqueness. Well, and that also makes complete sense, too, because from a from a curation standpoint, who knows better what's out there? Who knows how to have you stand out or what's unique to you better than someone that's read all of your competitors, right? So someone that's in the industry that understands what makes you unique. Exactly. And that's why finding the right editor is, I like finding the right editor to finding the right doctor. Because, you know, you want a doctor that you can trust and because you're revealing a lot of intimate things to, to a physician and you need to be able to trust them. And that's the same thing with an editor because, you know, whether it's a memoir or your fiction book, not any kind of nonfiction book, you've put your heart and soul into that book. And handing it off to someone else is a scary prospect. So you need to be able to find an editor who understands the genre you're working in, who understands you and what you're trying to say. And finding the right editor or editors, depending on you know what step of the process you're in, it's 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 work, mm-hmm. but it pays off in finding the exact right person. To, to work on your project. Yeah. That makes, I mean, it makes total sense because it is really a mentorship role. I don't think I ever thought about that before, but editing really be, is yeah. mentorship when you're talking about guiding someone toward the outcome. Because I know having written a ton of stuff uh, of varying non-book forms that you know, one of the biggest things is what is the purpose of this piece of writing? Is this is the purpose of this piece of writing a memoir? Like you said, am I am I telling my story to inspire others or am I putting something out there to get leads or both or neither? Right. Because not only will an editor know where your voice sits and what makes you unique, they can also help you get the return on investment on the book as a whole by making sure that you're heading in the direction of the outcome that you want, that you're writing the kind of book that or project that yields those exact results. Because I can't tell you how many times I've read independently published things that I'm like, I don't understand what the point of this book is. Exactly. And I and and that and that's what scares me as a writer is like if I'm gonna spend so much of all of the currencies, money, time, trust, faith, exhaustion, all of it, creativity, willpower. If I'm going to use up everything on this project, it better be damn good when it's time to go out into the world. And so I can't be so precious about it 
that I don't find a trusted advisor. Where do you think we learned not to distrust editors, but where do you think we learned? Because I don't ever, you know why? Because I don't ever hear anybody say, um, oh, you can't have an editor. They'll screw you over. Like, I don't hear that. But what I do hear is a lot of what we were talking to before, the idea of like, well, I don't need an editor. I'm going to have some light proofreading and and that'll be it because, you know, it's really mine and it's important to me. And da, da, da. like, where where do you think we got this idea that editors take something out of the process instead of adding more? I think... It has its grounds in elementary school because remember getting t- papers back from the teacher and there's red ink all over the oh, place yeah. and you need to work on this. You need, this is wrong. All the, I mean, that's why I use the pur- talk about purple pencils because red pencil is the traditional color of the editor and it's just become such a negative thing, a joke. Yeah. You know, oh, Alex, you've got your red pencil out, don't you? When you're reading my Facebook post, ha ha. No, I'm off the clock. I'm not. I don't care what you say on Facebook. You know, it's just it's informal. It's an informal discussion. I'm off the clock. You know, it's a it's a fine balance between editing for correct grammar and and punctuation and spelling. And understanding when to let those rules go. Mm-hmm. And that's the constant tightrope an editor walks is how much, you know, I could, I could be, you know, prescriptive, prescriptive is to the day is, is done, is to, the, to the end of the time. But I would be upholding that stereotype of the snotty editor with the little round glasses and my hair in a bun and right the typo police yeah, no. ah you got yeah, grammar nazis yes what's well, called grammar nazis editors hate that term by the way hate the term grammar nazis well good it's not a great term no it's not it's not but i can vouch i mean you and i have been friends for like a decade and i rarely capitalize i type mostly in fragments and I do not understand how semicolons work. And I love semicolons. You, I know. And someday you will teach me <laughs> and my book will be chock full of them. But like you, you have never once in any way been like, Annie, did you know that your most recent Facebook manifesto has 74 typos in it and you misspelled this and you used the wrong there? You have literally never ever done that again because you said like you're not on the clock but also that's my style and also at the end of the day a typo is not that terrible now when you and I really get to finally work in first in full force on my book I'm not going to be able to sit down and put out an entire book of sentence fragments and no capitalization I'm not a poet that wouldn't be super helpful. Like what we're talking about, that's not going to get me the gains of the clients that I want. That's not going to help them how I want. But but you're still going to be able to shift and guide me through the purple pencil and not through this weird grammar, Naziing whateverness. Because we all do know people like that, though. The people that right. like were like, 
the second you step out a line one inch, they're going to be on you. Right? The editors that are yeah. basically YouTube trolls. And wait, gross. That's not what we're talking about, right? We're talking about how right. to take your voice and make it shine better because because right. people may not want to read an entire book of my sentence fragments. People may want to actually read something well written. Oh, imagine that. What it comes down to is is clarity. And editors make your message clear. My husband and I were watching Little Mermaid last night. And, you know, there's Ursula the Sea Witch who steals the voice of Ariel. And a lot of people think that's what editors do. That's one of the myths I bust is, you know, we're not Ursula the Sea Witch. We're not going to steal your voice. We're not interested in doing that. You know, we just, we want to enhance your voice. Right. You're a voice teacher, not a sea witch. Exactly. Exactly. So you're a Sebastian, not a sea witch. <laughs> I'm coming up with an entire like marketing yeah. campaign for Alex and Alex. I know, and know, we're going, yeah, we're like, I know yeah. that we're not recording this in video, but Alex has seen this look for me so many <laughs> times where she'll say something really freaking brilliant and I'll just have to stop. And she'll know that the wheels are turning and that in about a week, she's going to have a marketing campaign that she never asked for all about Little Mermaid. <laughs> P.S. I love that you and Charles were watching Little Mermaid last night. That's We've been binging Disney Plus, so. Yeah. Heck yes. Good for you. But I yeah. think that's so true. That idea of like, and who am I without my voice? So if my voice goes away, I'm just going to be random sales strategist number 905. No. <laughs> Thing. That's the thing, though. I mean, entrepreneurs are bombarded. You go on Facebook, you are bombarded with ads. Write your book in 30 days. Here's the secret to a best-selling book. Blah, 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 blah. You get bombarded by those things. And if you try one of them and it doesn't work for you, you're going to feel like a failure. And the important thing, you're not a failure because that's not the system for you. It's important to remember that everybody's writing path, no matter what you're writing, if it's a Facebook post, if it's a blog post, if it's a book, everybody approaches writing differently. Some people love it and can polish something off in five seconds flat. Other people take longer. And that's okay. Yes, it's totally, completely okay. And, you know, I really do want to, I'm not trying to start ripples in the industry. I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus, but I do really want to go back to this idea of the book in 30 days um, because I oh. see that being marketed to people like me mm -hmm. freaking constantly. And if it's getting marketed yeah. to me constantly, it's getting marketed to everybody else constantly. And, and the word of warning I want to bring up about that is if you are protective of your voice to the point where you are hesitant to hire an editor, Definitely, by all means, then do not find some boilerplate method for book writing, because what they're going to do is they're going to say page one, write this page two, write this mm -hmm. page three, write this mm -hmm. book done. And you will wind up with exactly what you don't want, which is a facsimile of all the other books that that person has coached, right? If they're selling you yep. a method that is that tightly packaged, you're going to wind up with a pre-processed feeling book, at least yep. in my experience with my clients and, yep. and the stuff that I have seen. So Alex, what what is it that's so appealing about that? Is it the promise of the timeline? Is it that it's all... It's the promise of the timeline because everybody's like, 
I want to get a book out. I, you know, I don't care how I get, I just want to get this done. And two, it's the promise of a bestseller. Mm-hmm. And it takes all the guesswork out of publishing. It's like people don't know how publishing works. It's overwhelming. This takes out all the overwhelm. Yeah, well, that, and that, there's value to that. But instead, finding someone like you who can handhold you through a personalized process mm-hmm. just seems like a much safer way to go. Right. Well, I'm, I mean, a lot of editors will work, you know, just give me your, your manuscript, leave me alone to get it done. I'll hand it back to you when I'm done. And that's it. That's not how I work. Uh, that's not how I want to work. And, you know, if that works for them and their clients, that's fine. But I've been researching what authors want. I've spent the last two or three years listening to authors, talking to authors, finding out what do they know, what don't they know, what do they want to know. So I've, de- I've developed a process that is more, it's a bit more of a, a relationship than the most editors will give, more personalized relationships. Mm-hmm. I do an initial free 30-minute phone call to find out what the project is. I'll do a sample edit. Uh, so we, so the author and I can make sure we're a good fit for each other because that's important. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, if they decide to work with me, I have you know, check-in points. I go a lot further to make the process comfortable for the author than most editors do. Comfortable, accessible. And also, like you said, like, it's not just, I'm going to take this thing that you've poured over for however long and disappear with it and come back with something new. It is more um, interactive, right? It's more, it's, it's more back and forth. Not that it's like, okay, I'm going to show you every single edit I'm making, but also like you're going to have more than one conversation with this person. You're going to get a better feel for them. Yeah. So before I start, I make sure I understand what it is they're asking for. And I put that in my contract too. You know, once we've established what the ground rules are, how much editing they want done, that goes in the contract for both of us to have it right there in black and white. And then as I edit, if I come across something that, hey, I don't understand what you're trying to say here, I'll shoot them an email mm-hmm. or something and say, this is what I'm finding. Could you please clarify this for me? I want to shift gears for a second before we move on to our magnificent pop culture topic that I am so excited about. But I I want to touch on this this other industry standard in addition to the like write your book in 30 days thing. There's also even more than that of like write a book in a day and put it out there on and self-publish it and just chuck it out there. What could what could go wrong? Is that a good thing to be doing? Should we all be writing quickie books or should we save our stuff for more? Save your stuff for more. Um, Studies have shown that people who get any kind of level of editing done, whether it's asking your best friend's sister's aunt who loves to read to do a quick proofread of it or whatever, or if you you hire a professional editor like me, that increases book sales. Because you go on Amazon, you go on Goodreads, and you see people say in their reviews, I couldn't finish this book because there were too many typos. I couldn't finish this book because I didn't understand what the message was or what they were trying to say. And that affects your sales. And even if you go back and revise your book and republish it, those reviews are still up there. Yeah. 
So you might as well do it right the first time. That's like, I don't want that attached to me. That hashtag, that that horrible Goodreads hashtag DNF, which mm-hmm. means did not exactly. finish. Like, I don't want that attached right. to me ever. That would be a freaking nightmare. So the idea of putting out something half-baked is already really terrifying to me. But then putting something out there that's half-baked where there are sites specifically just to review those things. Oh, God. So what's a better, what's a gateway, right? If I'm not ready to write a full book yet, but I want to flex my writing muscles and I want to put pieces out there, what should I be doing? Should I be blogging? Should I be what? What should I be doing in order to prepare for eventual a lot of people, autumn. yeah, a lot of people will start a blog okay. because that's where they can develop ideas without having to worry about creating a full-length book. Um, I know someone who is in the process of writing a book, and she's using her blog to to test ideas, to work out ideas. She's also using um, her public speaking gig to expand on ideas or to test ideas, get feedback from people. Yeah, we're at point of recording, which is about a month before this comes out. We are just in the very beginning of the clubhouse tornado. And I have a feeling (laughs) a lot of people are going to be testing a lot of book material on clubhouse. Yeah, and... Yeah, and that's actually a platform I'm going to have to look into more in hosting you know, a room on, you know, how editors can help authors and whatnot. You and me both will dive into it together. <laughs> but speaking of adventuring together, oh my gosh, yes. segue, Alex, segue. Perfect. Perfect. Uh, today you have come here not only to talk about the purple pencil approach of editing, which I just freaking love and so encourage all listeners to look deeper into, but... Alex is here today to talk about one of the things that first bonded us as super friends, one of our very favorite shows of all time, (laughs) Doctor Who. Alex. (laughs) Yes. Cue cue the woo chorus as a screwdriver and a TARDIS. (laughs) Alex, what the heck? Does writing a book or words mattering or working with an editor or any of it have to do with Time Lords, Companions, and a beautiful universe. Well, remember Chris Eccleston's first episode when he reached out his pan to Rose and told her to run? Mm. That's what a good editor does for an author. You take your hand and we run with you. I'm getting weepy. <laughs> I'm already getting weepy. We have talked about Doctor Who for one sentence and I'm like, <laughs> I remember what he told Rose to run. But that is true. It is handheld my approach is hand-holding a lot of editors don't like to do this they're 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 more like the uh, like uh peter capaldi's doctor no touching no touching no touching no you know, touching no i'm i'm a little more a little more uh of uh, uh, of a partnership approach yeah um equal Definitely. partnership um, well and for people that don't know number one catch up alex what year did dr who go on tv first do you know originally yeah 1963 okay i knew that you would know that so basically if you don't know what doctor who is catch up it's been on tv since 1963 uh but it is a fantasy sci-fi character study of wonders uh revolving around a doctor uh who is an alien 
Well, it's an alien called a time ward who calls himself the doctor. Right, right. Oh, yes, he's not a medical so, doctor. Right. And <laughs> although that has been a source of confusion in many an episode, he is not a he or she. Now that we have a she, uh, is not a medical doctor. But what the doctor does on their journey is they pick up these companions. So, Alex, I want to know more from you about how the doctor companion relationship is more like the author editor relationship. Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Uh, because when you first start to put, you know, think about publishing a book, you look into it and you see all this information, like, do I get an agent? Do I have to do this? Do I want to do that? How much money is it going to take? It's overwhelming and it's scary. So I was thinking about it this morning and you know, those episodes where the companion goes wandering off for whatever reason and they find themselves in danger. And then someone, usually a resistance fighter finds them and takes them to safety. Yes. And that's, that's what an editor will do. An editor will find you and take you to safety. I love that. Like, over here, nope, nope. Like, you know, uh, I was thinking of one episode, I think it's Joe Grant. She goes wandering off into the woods and invisible people find her and take her to safety. I feel like that's the only real criteria for being a Doctor Who companion, by the way, is an inability to stay put when told to do so. Yeah, well, that's a running joke now. Right, but it's like, if you're told to sit right there and you can't do it, you, friend, may be a companion. And another way is, the doctor comes in and he makes sense out of chaos or she mm. makes sense out of chaos. And that's what a good editor can do for an author is to help make sense of publishing chaos. Cause it is chaotic. It is. And I mean, and it's, it's chaotic and it has brutal parts and there's rejection involved and there's vulnerability involved. And, and yet there's so many wonderful things involved too. Yeah. And I think that's key to be to what I do is helping you find the joy in the process and not just well on the, the fear and the overwhelm. How do you think nonfiction authors, because you specialize in working with nonfiction authors, how do you think nonfiction authors can world build? Um, in more of a fantasy way or or bring more color or more creativity to their books. Because one thing about Doctor Who and and everybody, you know, my brain immediately goes to Stephen Moffat and, and a lot of these mm. incredible writers and directors and talent that have just showered the show and really made it what it is. But it has such a unique magic to it Uh that goes above and beyond the font, like the fantasy and sci-fi genre into its mm -hmm. own thing. Mm -hmm. But I'm thinking like, I can understand how you might want to world build if you're a fiction author, but do you have any tips for bringing magic or world building into nonfiction? That's a really interesting question and actually not one I've thought about, but should have. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Yes. Thank you. I think it has to do with storytelling. You know, we, we always hear about brand stories and whatnot. And I think if you take that idea seriously and really, you know, craft, structure your book, because you are taking your, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, you are taking your reader on a journey. So, you know, every book has to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And just like every journey. And, and 
So if you're a nonfiction author, you're taking your reader through a journey of your ideas. Mm. So you want to show them, okay, this is what I'm thinking. This is my thesis. And then you want to show them, here's why I think this will work, or this is why this works. This is what I've seen in my career that led me to that thesis. And then you want to show your reader how it applies to their lives, why it will change their lives or you know, whatever your goal is. Um, so you too are taking your reader on a journey. And just as a fiction writer chooses their words with care, nonfiction writers need to choose the best words. I mean, you can say, I'm writing this book because I want to help people live better lives. Yeah, 99% of us could say we want to help people live better lives. Okay. Right. I'm right. So I'm writing this book because I rescued a cat on the brink of death. And now I want to show others how to do the same, thus changing the cat's life and the rescuer's life in the process. Infinitely more clear and infinitely more emotional. Right? <laughs> like, I want to make things better for other people. Okay, that gives you, like, a nice, lukewarm, sweet feeling. But, like, I'm going to teach you how to save the life of cats for your mutual joy. Whoa! Yeah. Right. Now we're talking about joy. You know, it, 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 it the, the addition of the emotion... I think exactly. is so key in the storytelling because that's one thing that everybody can relate to. And so that's one of the yeah. things that I try to communicate a lot in selling as well is we don't want to stomp on the pain points to the point where we make the where we make the reader feel beat up, but we do want to make the reader feel seen. And a way to do that is by storytelling, by showing them something familiar to them or something totally foreign to them that they hadn't even necessarily considered, mm -hmm. right? We're either opening their eyes or we're showing them themselves through that storytelling, through that emotion. And so, you know, when you say nonfiction authors pick the right words, my addition to that is nonfiction authors Pick the right emotions. And then find the right words to portray those emotions. Yes. Absolutely. 100%. And then find yourself an amazing editor who will walk the process with you, who will take you by the hand and say, run. Oh, now I got to go back and watch all the Eccleston episodes. <laughs> oh, man. It's just, you know, it's just going to be absolutely gorgeous. So, Alex... What else? Is there anything else that you want people to know as they sit down to write a book in 2021 or beyond about the world, about the story, about the words? Is there anything that we have left out of this story? You quote Professor Yana. Uh-oh. You are not alone. Oh. Alex is really trying to make me cry in this episode, everybody. Alex is really trying to make me cry. Go ahead, Alex. Keep trying. One of the... No, one of the great things about I love about New Who is that old past companions and new companions talk to each other and find out what is life like, you know, after the doctor. What happens to your life after after you stop traveling in the TARDIS? And they they now have a community. 
I mean, and even in real life, the actors who have been on Doctor Who, they are such a close-knit family because being on Doctor Who is such a unique experience that I don't think anyone else could understand it if they haven't been on the show. No. So if you go to a convention and, you know, you see, I mean, they're, they're, they talk on they Twitter They just love to each on other. each other. It's they hilarious. just adore each other. Yeah. New Who, Classic Who, it doesn't matter. They're, they're all in it together. And that's why I created my Community Writers Pet. To create a community for nonfiction writers who are underserved in the publishing world, uh, independent nonfiction writers who are, who are grossly underserved in the publishing world, as a place for them to talk to each other and, and get support, get guidance, get, have a community to get through the publishing process together. Because it really is a family affair. Or it can be. It has to be. It, it can be. It should be. It has to be. I like the way that you put that. Right. There. You said it has to be. That was your first reaction. Because, I mean, we all have this romantic image of the author slaving away in a freezing cold attic. <laughs> in reality, we're so connected to each other now, you know, through the Internet and whatnot. Even when we're isolating because of COVID, we're mm -hmm. still together. I mean, right now, through Zoom, through Facebook whatever platform you choose and to all of a sudden be unplugged from that to write your book to get your book published and stuff that's that's not healthy um I mean and that's how you fall prey to the get rich quick schemes and those the yeah. scams because you don't want to go through it alone and this is an easy way to get through it without having to invest a lot of time but you do invest a lot of money Mm -hmm. And you often end up losing that money. Mm -hmm. Oof. Well, there's a thought. But, you know, it doesn't have to be like that. It can be supported and it should be supported and it should be fostered by people that want to amplify your voice. And, and I think that's one of the main things that I've loved so much about watching you over the years work with other people to create these things is really that partnership and that relationship. So I'm so glad that you could come on to the show today. I have two more quick questions for you before I let you off into the universe. My first question is, if the shoe was on the other foot and you were going to put out a book tomorrow and hire an editor, but the only people you're allowed to hire are Doctor Who companions, Ooh. which companion would you pick to edit your book? That's a no-brainer, Sarah Jane. She's oh, a reporter. She's a oh, writer. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Okay. Amy Pond wrote a book. That's true. Pond did write a book. But yeah, Sarah Jane, no question. Why? Because she's smart, um, she's a writer, she's inquisitive, um, she's has a way of getting people to, I mean, if you see the Sarah Jane adventure, she, you know, gets the kids to, to think for themselves and to spark new ideas in them. So I think she'd be a great editor. Sparking new ideas. That's yeah, she'd take my book places. Yeah, she, she'd take my book places I didn't think it would go. God, what a gorgeous answer, Alex. All right. How do my listeners get in touch with you? How do they start a conversation with you? They can go to my website, loomisandlyman.com, and they can book a free 30-minute consultation, and we can talk. Um, I can answer questions. If they have a concrete project in mind, we can talk about that. I can tell them next steps uh, to take. 
You can find me on Facebook. Lewis and Lyman has a Facebook page. Those are the best places to find me. When is the best time in the book writing process to reach out? Is there a best time or is it just whenever? You can reach out to an editor before you start to write, but that really won't be productive. Okay. Reach out to an editor or to me specifically if you know, you're starting to write a book and you're already thinking down the road, like, what do I need to do next? Do I need to worry about this as I'm writing or can I fix this later? But the best time to reach out to an editor is when you've got your draft written and you've gone through it yourself and done self-editing, you've had your alpha and beta readers look at it. Then you go to the professional editors. That's when you bring them in. Because the more you can clean up your manuscript before you approach a professional editor, the more money you'll save. Can't argue with that. Alex, it has been wonderful having you on the show. Everybody, I will be back in just a minute with my final thought and your homework for the week. Well, hey there, listeners. I wish your homework this week could be gleaned from my own book writing experience, but like many of us, I'm still very much in the throes of writing and editing and writing and editing and crumpling up little bits of paper and hurling them across the room in a rage. Instead, I want to focus today on what Doctor Who has always symbolized for me, the importance of quality companionship. The people in your life and the life of your business that will take turns guiding you, pushing you, dragging you, inspiring you, challenging you, and uplifting you in your mission to serve others. The people who will take you by the hand and say, run. Your homework this week is to go out and find yourself a new companion. You don't have to ditch the ones you already have, nor do you need to put out an official job notice with 42,765 qualifications and prerequisites. That's not the point. Instead, put yourself in a place to meet new people. Yes, even in a pandemic. Attend that networking event you keep hearing about. Introduce yourself in a clubhouse room for people in your industry. DM someone whose content you adore on Instagram. You don't have to hire them. You don't have to put them on a pedestal. You just have to let them bring their support into your life. Your adventure may not live beyond just that one DM, but it's equally likely to blossom into any number of small business adventures. With a little luck, you'll discover someone who will be with you for the long haul. And if you do, be sure to message me and tell me all about your joint adventures. Too Legitimate to Quit is brought to you by the Non-Sleazy Sales Academy and me, your host, Annie P. Ruggles. If you struggle to sell because you don't know how to put a price on all that goodness in you and you don't like the way that your competitors do it, I have great news for you. You can find my free challenge, Making Selling Easy Without Getting Sleazy, anytime at www.anniepruggles.com slash easy, not sleazy. Our show is edited and produced by Andrew Sims of Hypable. Our fabulous theme tune is by Riley Horbacio, who I found on Fiverr. Our gorgeous podcast art is by Francois Vigneault, who I found on Upwork. And our marketing team is led by the unbelievably life-saving Nick Bonitatibus. 
Don't forget to check today's show notes for more information about our fabulous guests, plus some continuing resources and some Etsy finds from other super fans of today's topic. All pop culture elements mentioned in this episode remain the sole intellectual property of their respective owners. I do not own them, so please don't sue me. 